Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. And we're wrapping up the summer in here with a sermon series that we've called A Man After God's Own Heart. We've been looking at the life of King David, because this is the title that gets proclaimed over him, and we've been wanting to look at his life to see why that is said about him, how God works through him, not just because David's a great person or anything like that, but because we want to see how God works through David so that we can see how he works through us. And we left things off last week by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we saw that David had to flee for his life. So far in this series, we've seen that David was anointed to be the next king over Israel. He uh, uh, killed the giant Goliath. Everything was going great. His fame was increasing in the nation of Israel, and it seemed like things would continue that way. But the current king, King Saul, becomes more and more envious of David to the point that he begins scheming to try to put him to death. And we saw in chapter 20 last week that David is delivered from these schemes ultimately because of his covenant friendship with, with Saul's firstborn son, Jonathan, that David and Jonathan both choose their friendship with one another over what's in their own best interests, and through that, David is saved. But from there, David has gone, and he's had to live in the wilderness, on the run for his life. And the text never says this, but I have to imagine that this was not David's five-year plan. I mean, everything was going great for him. He was a national hero. That had led to military success. He was well-known. Everyone seemed to like him. Everything seemed to be going well, but now he is on the run, and the king of the nation and all of the king's army is in pursuit of him. It doesn't seem like life has gone as David had planned. And that begs the question of what do we do when life doesn't go as planned? What do we do when we have everything worked out, we are going to spend the rest of our life with this person, and then they decide they don't want the same thing? What do we do when there's a lot of exciting things coming at work that you can't wait to get through and then the doctor walks in and says, you have cancer? What do you do when you're counting the days down until retirement and then the economy goes in the tank? What do you do when everything seems lined out for the next few months and then a global pandemic hits and everything is canceled? What do we do When life doesn't go as planned, because that's the question David is being forced to answer as he is on the run in the wilderness. And it seems like at times we can cope in all kinds of ways. We can get angry at the world around us, at the circumstances that have changed. We can find distractions to try to numb our pain. We can become hardened and cynical because we never want to get our hopes up for anything again because we don't want to see them crushed And these these options and many more are in front of David at this point. Life hasn't gone according to plan. We're left wondering what is going to happen. And we're going to see that David eventually gets to a point where he trusts in God's purposes. And yet, that path isn't as straightforward as we might like to think. And so today we're really going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 25, but we're not going to really be able to understand 1 Samuel 25 if we don't understand the chapters on either side of it first. So what I want to do today is spend a little bit of time in 1 Samuel 24, a little bit of time in 1 Samuel 26, and then come back and end with chapter 25. So whether you want it or not, you get three sermons in one today, clear your lunch plans, we're going to have a great time, maybe. But starting in 1 Samuel 24, David is in the wilderness, 
And, and as he's out there, he's had a band of, of rough, rough guys, fighting men that have started following him in the wilderness, that have kind of become a sort of army, a, a, a bodyguard, security detail, whatever you want to call it, that's been following around in the wilderness. And so they are out there, and as they are, Saul, the king of Israel, receives a report of where David is. And so Saul and a thousand of his troops take off after David in pursuit of him, and and as they do, we find that Saul ends up getting much closer to David than he planned. Starting in 1 Samuel 24, at verse 3, it says that, that he, meaning uh, Saul, came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, the Bible's talking about going to the bathroom right there. I, I can't, I have to say what the text says, I'm sorry. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of you when he spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. While out in the wilderness, Saul needs a bathroom break, and I don't want to make any more jokes beyond that. And he goes into this cave. But what he doesn't know is that farther back in this cave is David and his men. I mean, this would seem like a perfect opportunity. God has already promised that one day Saul will be defeated and David will take the throne. Now here it is. David can make that happen. He could trade living in caves for the palace. And as he does consider all of this, he creeps up and he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. The text doesn't explain how David gets so close to Saul without Saul being aware of it, but that is what he does, and he should be happy, you would think, at this opportunity, but instead he is overcome by guilt. David knows Saul's not worthy to lead God's people. Uh, David's not overcome by guilt because he realizes Saul's actually a really great guy and he shouldn't be doing this to him. No, uh, David feels guilty because Saul's God's anointed for all of his imperfections, for all the things he has done, for all the things he's done to David, he is still the one that God had anointed to be king over Israel. And that fact alone means that he's worthy of honor even when his actions are not. And because that's true, that means God will complete his purposes. And he doesn't need David to speed those purposes along by trying to take the life of the king. And so David chooses to trust in the purposes of God. So he comes out of the cave. He confesses to Saul what he has done. He shows him uh, the, the corner of his robe that he has cut off. He shows that he could have taken Saul's life, but he has not. And so as he is standing here holding the edge of Saul's robe, it should show Saul that David is not a threat. And we get Saul's response starting in verse 16 to what David has said it says, when David finished saying all this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. 
When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the day you treated, for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. This would seem to be a happy ending. Saul admits David is more righteous than he is. He asked for God to bless David. It would seem like if this was a movie, the music would swell. They would shake hands or maybe they would even hug. There would be tears. They would turn around together and they would go back to the palace. Everything would be as it should be. And yet, as the story ends, Saul heads home and for some reason or another, David stays out in the wilderness. And unfortunately, these good feelings don't last. Because by the time we get to 1 Samuel 26, David is in the exact same position again. Again, in chapter 26, Saul gets a report of David's whereabouts, and he, this time he gathers up 3,000 of his troops. Remember last time it was just 1,000, and he takes off after David, and they set up camp in the wilderness, and they're in a position where David can see the camp of Saul and his men as Saul and his men go to bed that night. And the text doesn't explain why, but David decides it's a good idea to sneak into Saul's camp. And I want to start reading at 1 Samuel 26 at verse 7. It says, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul, lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on on the Lord's anointed, and be guiltless. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord will strike him, or his time will come, and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. Again, David is in Saul's presence while Saul is defenseless and unaware. Again, David has someone telling him that he can take Saul's life. And before, David had said he was not going to be the one to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And if you notice, Abishai raises his hand. He says, I'll do it gladly for you. If you don't want to do the dirty work, I will. And it would almost seem that God is expecting David to do something here. The very next verse from the passage we read, verse 12, tells us all this is happening because God had put Saul and his soldiers into a deep sleep and there is just a little bit of irony or poetic justice whatever you want to call it that the props that are there the things that could be used as a weapon are Saul's spear and a water jug now this is not an ancient Israelite spear it may or may not be what I used to make s'mores at home and it was the closest thing to a spear I had in the garage yesterday but the ancient Israelites did not have retractable spears that's not what I'm trying to say and that's not blood on the end of this it's marshmallows um but as David and Abishai are standing there, next to Saul as he is asleep, there is his spear and his water jug. And you might remember that earlier in David's life, when he's serving in the court of Saul as, as the musician for him, that on more than one occasion, Saul picked up his spear and threw it at David, trying to take his life. It, the text says that Saul has the thought that I'm going to pin David to the wall with my spear while he's playing music. And I don't know if it's the same spear or not. 
but it's the fear of the king. And there's a chance right there, David. Think about how good that story is, just as a, from a storytelling perspective, that David picks up the same spear that Saul had tried to kill him with, and he finishes the job with the king's own spear. It could be such a good story. And yet David does not do it. Again, he says that he will not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul has been set apart by God, and that means he is God's to deal with. And when God does deal with Saul, whenever that comes, David will become king. And until then, he is going to trust in the purposes of God. So David and Abishai slip away. They get a safe distance away. They yell back to the camp. They wakes everyone up. They, they do the same thing again. They say, look, we were right there. We could have taken your life, and we didn't. Doesn't this show you that I'm not a threat, that you can stop pursuing me? And again, Saul expresses remorse, and David returns that spear and that water jug, and Saul asks for God's blessing over David, and Saul and his men return home, and David and his men remain in the wilderness. Two stories, chapter 24 and chapter 26 where David has a chance to take the throne by force. And twice he refuses. I mean, it would seem that God puts everything on a silver platter for David to move us out of the reign of Saul and into his reign. But David trusts in the purposes of God, even when that means things have to move more slowly than they could. And if that leaves us wondering how, God could tr- or how David could trust God that deeply, we have to read chapter 25 where David sees God act in the ways that he has promised. 1 Samuel 25 has three main characters, David, Nabal, and his wife, Abigail. And we're introduced to this couple, Nabal and Abigail, by being told that Abigail is intelligent and beautiful, but Nabal is surly and mean. Nabal has great wealth, he's a sheep rancher, but we find out pretty quickly he's not worthy of his wealth. In fact, his name means fool. Now, we're pretty sure that's not his given name. I've never heard of a mom holding a newborn and thinking, you know, the best name for this little bundle of joy is fool. But it's a name that Nabal has well earned. We're told that David and his men have protected Nabal's shepherds and flocks. They've been a, they've been a bodyguard for, for uh, protecting Nabal's wealth for months now. And now it's time for sheep shearing, and that's a time for celebration. It's a time where all the workers get paid for all the work they've done over the last few months. And so David and his men are expecting to be paid for the services that they have rendered. And we're going to pick up the story at verse 10, after uh, David's men have showed up and asked Nabal for payment. Verse 10 says that Nabal answered David's servants. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? You know, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Every cultural convention, even the way our world works today, says that Nabal is in David's debt. I mean, David and his men have provided a service, and they expect payment for that service. But instead, Nabal responds by saying, who is David? Now, that's not a statement of ignorance. Nabal knows full well who David is. He is one of, if not the most famous person in the nation of Israel. But instead, Nabal mocks David. He says, who does David think he is? 
You know, I, I, th- that name David, it kind of rings a bell, but you know, there's so many people in Israel these days that are running away from their masters and not doing what they're supposed to do, like David's done with Saul, that it's just hard to keep them straight. So I don't, I can't, you know, the name sounds familiar, but I, I don't really remember who it is. And, you know, really, I don't have time to waste on people asking for a handout. I've got my own workers to pay. It's a busy time of year. I got a lot to worry about. I don't have the space or the extra money to waste on riffraff coming in just wanting to get in on the celebration. Eight times in verse 11 alone that we just read, Nabal refers to himself just to give us a clue into the kind of guy he is. David and his men are not worthy of his time in his eyes. And David gets this response back and he is immediately ready for a fight. He tells his men to strap on their swords. 400 of them start heading towards Nabal with him. They're going to get their payment and if violence is the way they have to make it happen, that's what David is going to do. He's sick of being disrespected. He knows what he deserves and it's time time that he takes care of it for himself. But as this is happening, another person goes to report on the events as well. A servant in Nabal's household goes and finds Abigail and begs her to do something. And the servant's report to Abigail ends with verse 17 by saying that, that Nabal is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. And we can maybe pause and wonder if men have changed any since then, but that's a different sermon. <laughs> Nabal's beyond reason. Arrogant, selfish, doing what he wants with no regard for others, and he's put his entire household at risk, and Abigail has to intervene. The text tells us she puts together a massive meal, probably out of the feast Nabal is throwing. She gathers up all the things that Nabal said he wouldn't give David and his men, and then some, in order to stop this confrontation. And we get this dramatic scene, starting in verse 20, where these two meet with the fate of everyone in Abigail's household hanging in the balance. At verse 20, it says, As she, that's Abigail, came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine. There were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. As Abigail comes toward David, he is seething under his breath. He is vowing to get revenge on Nabal. It's all been a waste. He's done the right thing, and he's got nothing in return. He's done being Mr. Nice Guy. He's done looking out for other people. He's going to get what is his. He makes a vow before God that before the night is over, every male in Nabal's household is going to be dead. And I don't know what the going rate is for protection of your flocks, but I'm pretty sure it's not that. But David is at a breaking point and has decided this action is justified. And if you hear that and think, boy, that does not sound like David at all, I think that's the thought we're supposed to have. I mean, here you have a leader of a military force trying to solve his problems by taking innocent lives. That doesn't sound like David at all, but but it does sound like someone else we've read a fair amount about. In fact, the way David describes his plans to wipe out the household of Nabal sounds very similar to the threats that Saul made against the Philistines all the way back in 1 Samuel 14, and those were plans that were stopped by God. But it goes beyond that. David uses an expression, a specific Hebrew expression in verse 22 to talk about the men of Nabal's household. And this is the one place in the Old Testament where that expression is used by someone who is not God. David seems to be 
not listening to anyone, putting himself in God's place. You might remember, if you've been reading through the life of David with us in our reading plan, that back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, after David has fled from Saul, no one knows where David is, but word gets back to Saul that some of the priests have helped David out, and Saul brings that priest in for questioning. The priest tries to reason with Saul and tell him to not not pursue David, but Saul instead orders for that priest and his entire family to be wiped out, and 85 innocent priests lose their lives because one guy won't do what the king says. As David is traveling towards Nabal, sword strapped to his side, 400 soldiers behind him. He doesn't sound like David at all. He sounds a lot like Saul. He might be traveling a path through a mountain ravine, but he is also traveling the path of becoming a king like the other nations. As David is confronted by Abigail, he is far from a man after God's own heart. We'll pick up at verse 23. It says, when Abigail saw David, she quickly cut off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. A few years ago, I was a groomsman in a wedding. And uh, on the night of the rehearsal, we were driving from the wedding rehearsal to the rehearsal dinner and had a flat tire in the car I was in on the way. And that was simple enough to uh, take care of. We got to the dinner a little late, but still made it there with really no problem. And I walked into the dinner, and a friend said to me, hey, uh, maybe go look in a mirror. And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, you kind of look like you've been in a war zone. And I was like, what are you talking, we just changed a flat tire? And I went to the bathroom, and sure enough, you know, you get dirt and grime on your hands from changing a flat tire. You touch your face, you touch your hair, whatever. You walk into a rehearsal dinner looking a little insane, to say the least. But it was that mirror being held up to me that brought me back into reality. And Abigail's speech here that we just read, I think we can picture it this way, it's like she's holding up a mirror to David to ask him if this is the kind of king he wants to be. Uh, She does that first by putting herself in the inferior position. If you notice, she doesn't come to David looking for a fight. She bows with her face to the ground. That's a vulnerable spot to put yourself in with someone who is angry and holding a sword. 
but she does this to diffuse anger. Once when I was in college, um, I honestly don't remember the whole situation, but I'd had some trouble with my internet provider and they had charged me more than they should have and I was livid about it because I was in college and had no money and I had uh, this great speech written. I was going to call them and tell them what the deal was and they were going to feel terrible and it was going to be the greatest thing ever. And I remember I called them, I started in explaining what the situation was and the, the gal on the phone said, oh, well, yeah, I'm looking at your record right here. Everything's great. Uh, well, you're exactly right. We'll refund your account and everything will be taken care of by the end of the day. And I had a moment of like, yeah, but do, do you still want to hear my speech? Because it was, it was going to be pretty good and, and you've, just, you've just undercut all, all the material I'd been working on here. But Abigail puts herself in that, in that position, in submission before the one that could take her life, just as David has done before Saul and the other two stories we've looked at, in an attempt to avoid violence. And having done that, she reminds David of God's purposes. She reminds him that God has anointed him to be king, that God has promised to establish him, that he's promised to defeat all of David's enemies. She reminds David of the faith he's shown in God before. If you noticed in verse 29 as we read, she says that God will hurl away all of David's enemies as if they are in a pocket of a sling. And I wonder if that reminds David of any story, any life experience he's had before. When David stood in battle before Goliath holding nothing but his sling, he said, is... It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. And now he's standing here holding a sword, wanting to save himself through his own might. When he used a sling against Goliath, he trusted in God, and it was that trust that showed him to be a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart doesn't take revenge into his own hands. He trusts in God. And Abigail holds this mirror up to David and says, David, is this the kind of king you want to be? Do you want to be a king who trusts in your own power instead of in the power of God? Do you want to be a king that thinks might always makes right? Do you want to be a king that does what he wants when he wants? David, do you want to be Saul? She holds up this mirror and it's not a pretty sight. And David recognizes he's in the wrong. He, he praises Abigail for stopping him. He asks that God would bless her for keeping him from getting blood on his hands. Abigail returns home. She finds her husband celebrating, oblivious to all that's happened. Actually, verse 36 says that Nabal was holding a feast as if he was a king. And after mourning, he has a clear mind. Abigail fills him in on what has happened. And the text says that after hearing this, Nabal's heart fails him, and he becomes like a stone. And he stays like that for 10 days, after which God strikes him dead. Now, I'm not entirely sure what medical condition that is, although scholars have their opinions, but that's not really the point. The point is that David is prevented from doing what he thought was best by Abigail, and when he did, it left room for God to act. Last week, we saw that David would not have been David without Jonathan. This week, we saw that without Abigail, David would have become Saul, a vindictive king only concerned with himself. And Abigail reminds David of God's purposes and brings him back from that ledge. And that story makes sense of the stories on either side of it. David might wish things were different. He might wish his rise to the throne was smooth. He might look at Saul and see a Nabal, a fool who is repaying, evil, or repaying good with evil. He wonders if maybe he should just take care of things himself. But instead, he is reminded to trust 
in the purposes of God. And if he will do that, he won't have to worry about Saul because God never asked him to worry about Saul anyway. God will do what he has done to Nabal, to Saul in his perfect timing. And David can trust that. And I don't know what life looks like for you right now. But I do know we live in a world that tells us there's no problem that can't be fixed by buying something off Amazon or watching a YouTube video about it. And when that's the world we live in, we can think we have to take the reins of life. It's always up to us to figure things out for ourselves. We live in a world that says if you want your problem solved, you need to trust in your bank accounts, you need to, con you need to trust in your political party, you need to trust in your resume, you need to trust in whatever it might be. But we have a God who says trust in him. We have a God who's not asked us to speed up his schedule. We have a God who has called us to trust his purposes. Whatever it is that you might be longing to be different in your life, whatever it is that's causing you grief, whatever's keeping you up at night, hand it over to God because his purposes demand patient trust. I don't know how God's going to write the rest of your story, the rest of the story of your loved one, but I know he's at work. That was true in David's life even when it looked like he was going to be living in caves for the rest of his life, and the same is true for us. So let God have control so you can experience his purposes because he is at work in, through, and around you. So trust in him. And it would be nice to end the sermon right there. <laughs> you thought I was done. Um, if we ended the sermon right here, it would be a motivational speech to try harder to trust in God, just like how David tried harder to trust in God. But if you read all of 1 Samuel 25, you notice that at the very end of the chapter, we are told that after God strikes down Nabal, David takes Abigail to be his wife. And the text mentions multiple times that that means that now David has multiple wives. And a lot of commentators will point out that, well, this seems to work out pretty well for David because Nabal was a wealthy guy. Now David gets all of Nabal's wealth. And actually, if you look at where Abigail's from and where his other wife's from, they're pretty strategic political places within the region of Israel. So David's building alliances to establish his kingdom. There's one level of this, of David being a good politician. But the fact that the text keeps reminding us that now David has multiple wives seems to be calling us back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 where God is telling the people what a king is supposed to be like. And one of the things he mentions is that kings should not take multiple wives for themselves. David has learned a significant lesson about trusting in God here in this chapter. But that little comment at the end shows us he hasn't learned it fully. There's still elements of worldly kingship creeping into this man after God's own heart. So if the point of this story is that we should trust in God like David, then the way this chapter ends kind of undercuts that lesson. If the point of the story of David is supposed to be, be a great person like David was a great person, then, then we should probably skip over the fact that he didn't always do what God said. Which is why I'm so grateful this story is not calling us to be like David. David is a flawed human being, just like you and me. But he prepared the way for another. There was another one who came, descended from David, who would trust in God completely in every area of his life. One who was tempted to take matters into his own hands, was tempted to establish his own kingdom on the world's terms, and in that moment prayed to God, not my will, but yours be done. We don't need a king like David. 
At the end of the day, we need King Jesus. The one who came from God to establish his kingdom because he trusted in his Father and, and suffered for our sake so that we could be set free from sin and death. He is the one we trust in. He is the one that makes it possible for us to trust in God when life does not go our way. So trust in Jesus as God completes his purposes in you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the faithfulness of your son, Jesus, who is there when we fail, is faithful when we are faithless. We thank you for his obedience to your will, even when that came at great cost to him, but was great benefit to us. And we thank you for the life we have because of what Christ has done. God, in every area of life, no matter what it is, no matter what messages we receive from the world around us, God, we ask that you would help us to trust in you more deeply, to know you're at work, to know you're present with us, to know that you're good and faithful to us, and that you will deliver us into life with you. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 